Once upon a time. In a land far away. I'm Katrina. And I'm Jeff. And welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat. While we retell you a thing. So today we're going to continue our discussion that we started last episode about geomythology, uh, which ended up being, you know, way more interesting than I thought it was going to be. And I thought it was going to be pretty interesting. But Katrina, we talked a little bit about this, um, you know, after we'd finished recording the episode about how one of the reasons we like, you know, like folklore is that it's kind of this way to learn about lots of different things. I mean, so far we've learned about a lot about different cultures and different people. And there's some more of that too. But now we get to learn about, you know, geology, which is you know, like a scientific field that I have very, very little experience in, but it's really fun to be able to kind of learn some interesting things about it, you know, through stories and through things that are kind of more naturally interesting to us anyway. So you want to, um, just for people who may not have caught the last episode, fill us in a little bit about what exactly geomythology is. Oh, sure thing. So geomythology is combining the studies of geology and mythology to look at how what stories people came up with to explain natural phenomenon that's happening in relation to earth sciences the movements of the earth earthquakes volcanoes tsunamis even things like fossils count as geomythology stories that happen around fossils because Ancient people were still finding fossils and stuff, and they didn't have the understanding about what those were, and they would freak them out. (laughs) (laughs) Or even geomythology or equal, because I'm like, if you see a giant lizard skeleton in stone, like, it's going to freak you out. (laughs) Is there one of these things out there that's going to come and eat me, or what's going on? Oh, yeah. Or even smaller things like gemstones, when they would find those, some they would, you know, give specific meaning to. And so geomythology is a term that was coined in the 60s by a geologist to just kind of describe the stories that were related to phenomenon like those, both big things like earthquakes, tsunamis, all the way to smaller things like finding, like, fossils of like bugs and amber the last episode we talked a bit about a couple volcanoes craters both craters formed by volcanoes emptying out and then also impact craters but something that comes up all around the world in cultures that rimmed the pacific ocean are earthquake and tsunami uh myths because the Pacific Ocean and the land around that, that's what they call the Ring of Fire. Not the Johnny Cash song. Yeah. So in the Pacific Ocean, there is what geologists call the Ring of Fire. And there's earthquakes, volcanic explosions. Like There's a lot of earth movement out there. And those are the things, volcanoes and earthquakes, they can cause tsunamis. And so all the cultures that were around the Pacific Ocean have tsunami stories. That's how the people of those different cultures explain it. So all the way from indigenous people that lived in 
Alaska and like Oregon and you have them in Japan, the eastern coast of Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, Thailand, mm. everything like all along there. They all have tsunami myths. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about some of those cultures and some of those myths. So I was kind of growing up in Asia. I was a little bit familiar with the Namazu story when I was a child. We had the book called uh, The Magic Fan, and it's a story about this Japanese man who builds a giant bridge as tall as a rainbow to save all the people like in Japan from an attacking Namazu uh-huh. before this big tsunami came. And so to me, I was semi-familiar with this Japanese story. So it's funny to me that you um, talked about how you didn't heard about like the Namazu from a book. Cause well, I first heard about the Namazu or like the story of a Namazu when I was living in Japan. Cause I actually experienced like a couple of earthquakes while I was living there, which is not really that surprising because you know, there's earthquakes in Japan all the time. Yeah. Japan actually has like 10% of the world's seismic activity. <laughs> oh wow. So it, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. like, so it's like, it's not surprising at all that you experienced, experienced multiple in the, you know, two years that I was there. Yeah. And I totally believe that statistic because really they were like happening and, and not always big ones, obviously, but little yeah. ones. But I also really fairly recently read a comic book that has like a whole storyline about the Namazu. And the funny thing about the comic book is it's like a, a like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles like crossover with like a, a comic called Usagi Yojimbo, which is about like a Japanese samurai rabbit. But they have this whole thing about how, you know, the Ninja Turtles have to help this samurai rabbit defeat a Numasu. <laughs> but um, again, how we've talked about like on the podcast before that when you understand old stories from that area, you understand some of what you're seeing now, like in modern culture. Right. Because like, that that comic book is recent. It's not an yeah, it ancient like two thousand and eleven. Exactly, um, and it was cool too because the they had like kind of like a forward and an afterward talking about like the mythology and where Nimazu comes from and stuff like that. So I learned a lot of interesting stuff about it. But so basically, for those who don't know um, who aren't familiar with the Nimazu, is basically a giant catfish that is uh, you know legend has it that it lives under neath like the mud in Japan. And when I say giant, it's like super giant. And most of the time it sits around and it's calm and it's just chilling out and, you know, living its best life. But sometimes it starts to swim around and, you know, starts moving around wildly. And what, and, and that, because it's under Japan, it starts rocking it. And they, they say that's what causes earthquakes is this giant catfish just going around moving the earth. And that's what starts it trembling and rumbling and rolling and, you know, really bad things can happen when earthquakes uh, are going on. Like we talk, just something as simple as like, you know, buildings and things falling down to, you know, it displaces water and huge tsunamis come and add, you know, on top of the destruction that an earthquake might already cause, you know, the tsunami comes in and causes even more, you know, devastation. But the story has it that, so in the same legend, there is a god of thunder and he's like a warrior god named Takemikazuchi no Mikoto. And uh, he also goes by the name of Kashima Daimyojin. And uh, he saw all the 
you know, destruction that was being caused by these earthquakes because of the namazos. So he's like, you know what? I got to do something about this. So he picks up, picks up this big rock and puts it on top of the uh, namazu's head to pin it down into the earth so that it'll stop it from like, you know, stop the intensity and the frequency of all these earthquakes from happening so that the people don't have to live in fear of these, you know, just devastating earthquakes happening all the time. And so they, they say, again, ties into like, the geomythology kind of portion where the tip of this stone is sits outside the ground and can be seen at the Kashima shrine um, in Hitachi. And so the, the Kashima shrine is like one of Japan's largest shrines. And it's like one of the most famous ones as well. And so they, you know, that's the story of that rock is that's the rock that Takemi Kazuchi put on top of the, the Namazu's head. And apparently also outside of this shrine, there's a restaurant that dates back to like 1897 and that restaurant specializes in catfish <laughs> which That's i thought hilarious. was just a, a funny little uh addition to the story it's like of course the the restaurant outside of the kashima shrine serves catfish on its menu it makes full sense so even though Takemikazuchi, you know, put this rock on top of the Namazu's head, he's not always there to make sure that the Namazu is actually being pinned down by the stone that they call the um, the pinning stone, or in Japanese, it's the Kaname Ishi. So one interesting thing is that like people, as kind of like in like a sort of like a ritualistic sort of way, like embodying the story, they live it out by taking stones that you know represent this you know pinning stone. And they'll place them at shrines as like a way of being like, hey, we're trying to pin down the namazu, trying to minimize earthquakes. It's kind of like a, you know, sort of what I imagine is being sort of like, you know, a prayer. Be like, hey, you know, let's try to keep us safe from earthquakes this year or whatever it may be. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of a cool thing. Again, like you've got this story and then people yeah. kind of acting it out or living it out in some way. It was kind of yeah. another really interesting aspect of it. Because it's like you'll you'll see people take mythologies like this mythology of what's causing these like earthquakes because like earthquakes and tsunamis are terrifying. They're absolutely terrifying. They're unpredictable. They're extremely destructive and people want to know why they happen. And so if they can figure out why they happen, then maybe they can figure out how to make them stop. And so if there's kind of this like mythology around what's causing it and there's something that they can physically do to make it better it eases like it it eases a cultural anxiety about like oh this is gonna happen yeah and they feel like oh we're taking active steps towards preventing an earthquake when in reality it's there's very little you can yeah. do that's one of the things that is so scary to me about natural you know, disasters tsunamis natural disasters so i live in a place where the biggest kind of natural disaster threat is hurricanes which I've realized that's kind of like the best natural disaster to have in your area, especially in modern day. Yeah. Just because you have so much warning. You know, every time there's been a hurricane that was going to be potentially like catastrophically damaging to our area, like we had plenty of time to prepare and either, you know, prepare to hunker down or be able to evacuate, yeah. you know, with plenty of time. But like an earthquake, there's no early detection like they talk about too like oh animals can sense earthquake activity like what it is that i can't remember again we should have your dad come on and explain all this geology stuff yeah. but uh, <laughs> there's like the p waves and the s waves or whatever it is and yeah. one of them travels faster and it's like animals feel the 
the first faster traveling waves which is, that we don't feel. Which is why the Japanese linked the catfish, Namazu, uh, why they linked Namazu with catfish and thought he was a giant catfish is because what they noticed is that right before an earthquake happened, the fish in the area would be acting differently. Yeah. They would be act- thrashing around acting erratically and they linked the that image of these catfish thrashing around acting wildly yeah. with with the earthquakes. The earthquakes and the Namazu so because the fish sensed it. Yeah. It's it's interesting, but it's like you know, going back to it, it's like the terrifying thing is like you can't escape when the where are you going to go? Like unless you get up in like an airplane or something, it's like there's not enough time to do that anyway. But it's like the whole world is shaking beneath you. It's just so terrifying. Yeah. Um, and like I said, when I I experienced a couple of earthquakes when I was in Japan, and even the worst one wasn't that bad, at least from from where I was. So like I experienced a few where I would get woken up in the middle of the night by our building, you know, shaking. And it was like, oh, but it was, you know, like, even though it shook fairly strong, it didn't last very long and it was over and you kind of were like, okay, that's it. And it was nothing. But I was actually there during the um, the 2011 earthquake, the huge one that had the huge tsunami as well in Sendai, which is really scary. But it's like I was in, so I was in Nagoya, which is like 350, almost 400 miles away from Sendai where that happened. Yeah. And we still felt it. Yeah. And it was crazy because the effects that we felt were really minor. I remember I was in like a meeting and it was a time where people were just kind of with their heads down working silently. And I felt this feeling like in my stomach all of a sudden, like I felt like I was going to throw up like this rolling feeling. Yeah. And I thought it was just me like getting sick or something. And so I felt that I was like, oh, that feels weird. So I just took a break and look up and I noticed everyone else in the room is like looking around like what is going on. And then the next thing you know, we're in this building that's like a one-story building and the it feels like we're in a boat that just starts rocking like this slow rocking back and forth and most of us were sitting down but there was someone that was standing up like in front of us like that had been doing a presentation or whatever and like to look at him it just looked like he was swaying side to side but he was just trying to stay you know standing he ended up like leaning up against the stage or whatever that he was on swaying from side to side and it lasted so long and i remember you know, at the time, even we we're like, I don't know where that happened, but wherever that was, that was huge. And it ended up being like a, you know, record breaking earthquake in, yeah. in Sena and then the tsunami that came afterwards. And seeing the, like the footage, that was like the, the hardest part of it was like seeing the footage of what was going on with the tsunami after the fact yeah. in Sendai. Because again, it looked like that could have been Nagoya. It could have been the city that I was living in at the same time. Yeah. It looks so similar, but to see, like cars and things being swept away by just this massive wave. It's like, I could see why people would have come up with lots of stories on like epic scales of why these things are happening. Cause it's just something that's so big and so destructive. It's hard to wrap your head around it. Oh yeah. It's like, it feels massive. What was interesting. So recently in the United States, the, um, I think it was like during, during the summer, I want to say there was an earthquake in California And the earthquake that happened in California, first, one day, there was this earthquake. I'm trying to remember how deep they said that it went down. We could feel it where we were living, and we do not live in California. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And we, the the first day, I was the only one in the house that felt it. Um, And at first, my husband thought that I must be crazy, but the blinds were 
still moving even after it yeah. had stopped. And that's how he was like, oh, she's like not losing it. But I I messaged my dad because he's a geologist um, or a geophysicist. And I told him, okay, there was an earthquake and this is how far down they're reporting that the that the shaking happened. And he messaged back and he's like, you're going to need to watch out because that that depth of a earthquake is very shallow. And what you might have felt is actually called a foreshock. And there's mm. probably a bigger earthquake coming. And about 24 hours later, there was a much bigger oh, man. earthquake that shook for a lot longer. Um, and then there were, I think they said in the months following, there were like thousands more and there's like a visible crack, like in yeah. in the earth of like where it happened. Cause it was just a very big earthquake. But what I thought was, fascinating on a mythology level <laughs> is that online I was seeing people saying things like, Oh my goodness, why is this happening? Like th th there's so many of these like, like happening. Why is this happening? Why would God do this? Why is God letting this happen? Why is, and they went to a mythology, like they went to like a religion. They wanted right. to know a religious reason so that they could, I guess, like repent or make sacrifice to or, you know, whatever needed yeah. to be done to make the shaking stop. And so I, I think it's so fascinating that, you know, you have these people in Japan who, you know, hundreds of years ago had this myth. And we're actively doing stuff to try to use religion to stop the yeah. earthquakes from happening. And even today, you know, we still have people who when the earthquakes are coming and they're like, this is it's so big and it's uncontrollable. What can I do to control it? What why is God doing this and how can we get yeah. God to make it stop? I remember in Japan, too, there are supposedly these kind of like stones uh -huh. that have been put up. They're not supposed to be like the pinning stones or anything, I don't think, but they're just these like stone markers because most of Japan is like along the coast because it's like so mountainous. So most of the population lives along the coasts. Yes. Um, but there are certain places where like where there are these stones that rise up to whatever elevation, like do not build your homes below, below this stone. And it's like ancient, ancient things. And they're saying it's probably, you know, like tsunamis that had come. And so they're like, hey, everything that was below this line was destroyed. So yeah, not that there's like a mythology around it, but just like the fact that these we, we talked about in the, the other geomythology episode, but whatever way they have to mitigate it, like, you know, passing down these stories. Yeah. Like if you're talking about, oh, this is a place that like an Enumazu or the Numazu lives. It's like, oh, letting you know, this is a place where earthquakes yeah. happen. And I think, too, like the actual benefit of, you know, taking a stone and putting it on a shrine may not have any actual effect on causing an earthquake or not. But it's kind of, I, I would think, a reminder that, hey, earthquakes are something that are part of our life here. Yeah. It's, it'll keep it in your mind. Yeah. And it's so like if you see a rock put on a on a shrine or whatever and that comes to your mind, you you think, oh, yeah, we live in a place where earthquakes happen. And it might remind you to be prepared in whatever way that you can. You know. Yeah. And one of the functions that people think these mythologies serve, because they show up all around these cultures that are around the Pacific Ocean, the reason why they were so important to keep passing on and to find a way to have them easy for people to remember and to keep telling to their kids is because you cannot predict when an earthquake is going to happen. You can't predict when a tsunami is going to happen, except that, you know, a tsunami can happen after you feel an earthquake. 
But sometimes right. tsunamis can happen when you don't feel the earthquake because it happened out into the water, but the tsunami yeah. is coming for you. And so the only way to keep your people alive and your people safe is to keep passing down these stories that usually include details of what it looks like. Yeah. To see a tsunami. Because there were stories that talked about, like, like if you are walking on the beach and suddenly the ocean pulls away from you and then it starts to stack up, run into the hills as fast as you can and never, ever look back. Just run as fast as you can. And the reason why it's important to pass on those stories that have clear, distinct details about what it looks like yeah. is so that... You know what? Maybe my generation, in imagining I'm telling the stories thousands right. of years ago, maybe my generation will never see a tsunami. Maybe it just won't happen to my generation. But I still tell the story to my kids because if it happens in their generation, they need They'll to know ready. when to run. Yeah. And so these these stories, they they weren't even to just explain why the earth sometimes shakes. Right. They were also used as kind of like PSAs. <laughs> like like this is a public service announcement like if you start to see the water suck out into the ocean then you need to run away because it's going to come back and it's going to come back real hard and so these stories could literally save lives knowing what what it looks like can save a life uh so one thing that i thought was really odd and kind of like kind of a side piece on the story of the Namazu is that um, during the Edo period in Japan, which is like 1600 to 1868, there was apparently an increase in seismic activity that was happening for whatever reason. Sometimes the earth needs time to settle into itself <laughs> for a big long bit. But something that was happening was this was kind of a time when People in Japan were, from what I understand, which I don't know a lot about Japanese history, I will be totally honest, but there was a lot of like class distinction, a lot of wealth inequality that was happening where the rich were building grand palaces, these tall stacked castles and just yeah. really beautiful things, had lots and lots of money, but when the earthquakes would come, it would topple all of that down and it would basically render the really rich either killed, hurt, their loved ones were dead, killed in the collapsing building yeah. or, or they would just be left, you know, with no belongings, no money anymore. And they were poor. Right. Yeah. Their house the, is destroyed. Yeah. Their house and is like destroyed. And like the belongings in it. Yeah. Everything was gone. And so these rich people, so poorer people started to see earthquakes as this great equalizer so they uh -huh. started to see namazu as this symbol for like a deity who could bring balance to the uh, classes of people yeah, and so poor people actually started to then see namazu as kind of on their side <laughs> and like their friend and they started to carry around like like carvings, talismans, like just little things of this, like catfish or get pictures and hang them like in their walls because uh -huh. they, uh, they saw not, they didn't hang the pictures in their walls on their walls. 
Um, they wanted to have this symbol in their house because they felt like, oh, this catfish is like on our side. <laughs> it's kind of like and the so patron saying of the poor. <laughs> yes, because it's like, like, no, earthquakes, they will bring down high up people back down, like, you know, where they belong. It humbles them. It brings them down. Because an earthquake does not care who you are, how much money you have, especially yeah. if your house is not earthquake proof. Yeah. Just it is really interesting because you talk about it too. It's like you know the if you're if you're building big tall structures, you know, back in the day that are not earthquake proof that don't have. I mean, there's crazy stuff that goes into earthquake proof, like giant like weights and pendulums and whatever inside of buildings oh, or yeah. whatever things that they do to earthquake proof buildings. Like it would definitely seem like not seem like but like it would affect richer people more because they were the ones that were building those big tall houses. Whereas like you know if you're living like in a little basically like a hut. You know, it's like, even if it does fall over. Yeah, big whoop. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're like, oh, I can rebuild this. I'm going to have my friends come over. We're all going to just pick our houses back up and like, it'll be fine. I never heard that before that they were like, there was kind of this like, not like a cult, but like, you know, the cult of the Namazu. Yeah, where it was just this kind of, it was a weird reversal of the character as like, they felt like, yeah, like this fish is on our side. (laughs) This like... He's helping us and... Yeah, because like in the story, it's like, you know, Takemikazuchi is the one that's like coming in and he's protecting the people. He's pinning down and defeating the Namazu for, uh, for the, to protect the people. But then, you know, the poor people were like, you know, the Mazu's like, he's our champion. He's taking down the rich people and making, bringing, humbling them and bringing them de- back down to our level. So it is really interesting, yeah. like the different characteristics that he comes across. Uh, another thing that was interesting that I just remembered too um, about Takemikazuchi... Apparently, Takemikazuchi is credited as being the like first one to win a sumo match oh. against like some sort of like unruly deity. So it's like he's also tied into not just you know the Kashima Shrine and and the Pinning Stone and you know taming the Namazu, but also the birth of sumo, which is kind of another fun fact adjacent to the story at least. Yeah, no, that is awesome because it's like these characters that we see in like different mythologies. It's like they're in more than one story. They yeah. are they they have whole lives of like tales and conquests and things. So the Japanese Meteorological Agency apparently has a catfish image on all of their earthquake and tsunami, like on their early detection software. That's hilarious. And it's just another one of those things where, and I'll keep driving this home throughout the podcast, that when you understand the stories from long ago, you realize how completely saturated everything is with those images, with like references to those stories. And so the reason why they put this catfish on their earthquake and tsunami early detection software is because they're like, oh, people will understand that's what it's for because catfish, tsunami, earthquake, like they all go together. Like we all know Namazu. That's what I'm making a reference to. And so the more that you understand these old references to a culture's like mythologies, their folk tales, the more that you will understand things today, the culture of how it is right now today. Yeah. And the more interesting the world becomes when you can start to notice things like that. 
Nothing is better after a long day cruising down Route 66 than finding a great place to get delicious food. Before you stop in at the famous Jackrabbit Trading Post, head over to Mr. G's Pizza in idyllic Joseph City, Arizona. Enjoy pizzas made to order, toasted subs, or fresh salads. And when you're done, grab some ice cream to enjoy while you get back on that beautiful Route 66. Remember to ask for Andy and let him know that he needs to pay those traffic fines whether or not the aliens do come back for him. He won't need that money in space. Mr. G's Pizza has been family owned for 25 years and when you're there, you're family too. But not Andy. He just works there. So when I was looking at different tsunami stories, I was kind of shocked because I was reading about one that was in Australia and they mentioned like, oh yes, so at the end of Cape Jervis, I think is how you pronounce it, like if you are standing on Cape Jervis and you look out towards Kangaroo Island, you'll see these uh, this small island, these like two little islands that there's this story connected with them. And it caught my eye because I currently have a friend who lives on Kangaroo Island. and I'm going to be going to visit her <laughs> um, in like in a month or so. And I was like, Cape Jervis, that's where you catch the ferry to go to Kangaroo (laughs) Island, which I only knew because I had to research how to get to Kangaroo Island from like Adelaide. And you have to go from Adelaide to Cape Jervis. And so now I'm super excited to kind of like keep my eye out for this little island. So there's a character that I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but I'm pretty positive I'm not. Nagurunduri. Sorry, everybody. So Nagurunduri is apparently one of the great ancestral characters in what, again, from last episode, you might remember like the, the dreaming or dream time, um, which is like a, a term that Westerners came up for in English for kind of the Aboriginal concept of before recorded time or an ancestral past, but that is still affecting our current. And I don't even think I'm explaining it correctly because Mm -hmm. it's a concept that is unique to Aboriginal people. And sometimes living in a culture helps you fully understand a concept, but not necessarily be able to explain it to other people. Yeah. And so... I apologize if, (laughs) again, I am like not describing it correctly or fully explaining the nuances of it. But Nagarurunduri, I hope I'm saying that right, is this ancestral character. And there's a story of him that basically describes him shaping this whole landscape of South Australia from like him creating rivers and just creating the full like infrastructure of like this whole area. Uh-huh. And in the story, what's motivating him forward is that he is he has two wives who have run away from him and he's trying to chase them down and get them back. And so he's passing through all of these different places and it's describing him basically creating all of these like rivers and bays and everything. And 
his wives, they fled onto the beach from him uh, and they reached Cape Jervis. And when they reached Cape Jervis, this was a time where there was still a kind of a land bridge between Cape Jervis and what today is called Kangaroo Island. And so they were running along this like thin piece of land towards Kangaroo Island. And Nagurunduri, in his like rage, he commands the waters to like rise up. And so the waters like pull back away from his wives and stack up into the sky, and then the ocean falls down on top of them, and it drowns them. And then they turned into hard stone, and they turned into what's called the Pages Islands, or the Sisters Islands, that are located between Cape Jervis and Kangaroo Island. And then Nagurunduri went he crossed over to Kangaroo Island and then he walked all the way to the western edge of the island and he threw his spears into the sea and he dove in and then he was sucked up into the air and went into the milky way and became a star so there's this kind of whole mythology around this character how he shaped the land and this kind of tsunami imagery is used to talk about how these islands got to where they are. And what's interesting is, so in the last episode, we talked about how this there's this separate tribe of people who were who guessed that this crater was made by an impact from the sky, even though it happened millions of years ago. And it's kind of a similar situation here because between Cape Jervis and Kangaroo Island, there did used to be a strip of land that connected Cape Jervis and Kangaroo Island to each other. But scientists believe that that has been covered up since early at the end of the last ice age. And so they don't know whether people had actually kind of witnessed uh-huh. the waters starting to flood up around that area or whether they were able to hypothesize that that once used to be like a strip of land. So this story also points out another little part of geomythology. So while this includes details of like tsunami imagery, of how these like women were drowned because it includes that ocean pulling back, rising up and falling down from the sky. Uh So it includes that tsunami imagery, but there are also geomythology stories that explain rocks that look like other things. You know what I mean? Where, and I'm not talking about, there's like a French explorer who like, looked at some hills and was like, oh, the Grand Tetons. (laughs) I'm not talking about that. (laughs) I'm talking about where they'll believe that something was frozen, like encased in rock forever as like a punishment. Like pillar of salt situation. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is one of those stories that not only is it like a tsunami tale or possible tsunami tale, but it also 
it's also a geomythology story to talk about these islands and how they are a distinct feature or the rivers and how they became part of the landscape. That was a thing that I thought was really interesting. And again, you know, thinking about the world in a previous time, like, you know, now we have like, you know, Google maps on our phone and we can easily find places, but you can see, I can totally see the value in, in that where having a story about how something came to be, or that somehow personifies Mm -hmm. a, a, a landmark would be helpful in helping you remember that landmark. So when you're going, like, I'm trying to get to Kangaroo Island. Well, I know that in between this place and this place, there are these two islands, and that's a landmark I can see that knows that I'm on the right, you know, on the right path to get to the place that I'm trying to go. Yeah, so the story becomes almost like a mnemonic device. Right. That's acting as a map. Exactly. So you're like, oh, I'm traveling down the Murray River. Soon I'm going to get to this spot and this spot and then I'll be at Cape Jervis and then if I can see those two rocks in front of me I know that I'm looking in the right direction towards Kangaroo Island or my boat is going in the right direction towards Kangaroo Island yeah it's it's really interesting I'm glad that you pointed that out because yeah I had not thought of that until like until you were saying that that you're (laughs) like like also this story makes a good mental map yeah and I hope people understand that um, I'm just an idiot and I'm just making things up as I go along because I've done very little research, but that's just what it seems like to me, you know, like. Yes. No, and I'm like, that's brilliant. I'm just projecting myself into the past and saying like, you know, how that explains how it could be so valuable. Um, Which I also think for me, that's why when I'm reading through the story, it becomes very hard for me to kind of understand or like stay engaged with parts of it because they're describing different areas and i'm like i don't know what this place looks like i'm sure if i was traveling down it, i'd be reading this story going whoa like this is an exact map like down it yeah but because i'm not familiar with like the full area the only part that really interested me was i was like cape jervis (laughs) i know where that is (laughs) i know where kangaroo island is because that's where i get on the ferry (laughs) it is an interesting thing and i'm not sure what to get from this. But again, like you were doing this research and then you happened to stumble across something that was related to, you know, something that was happening in your life. The point I'm trying to make is there's so many of these stories that just happen all over the world, like everywhere. So it's like, should it be surprising that there was something that happened in this place that you're going to? I don't know. Yeah. I, but it stood out to you because it, it has like some sort of connection to yeah. you. And I feel like, And I'm like, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like the point that you're getting at is that no matter where you are in the world, there are interesting stories around you. Or there have been mythologies and folklore made up about things that are all around you, no matter where you are living on the globe. There are cool things. And so, yeah, to me, because I'm planning this trip... And I saw a name that I recognized. I was like, oh, that's so exciting that I'm going to be going out there. But you don't have to be going to anywhere foreign or distant to find a place that has a cool story that's attached to it. Yeah, totally. And I think the other thing about it is how much more interesting and fun and enriching is that trip, that ferry trip from 
you know, Cape Jervis to Kangaroo Island going to be when you can look out and see, oh, those are the sister islands from that story, you know, and... Oh, yeah. And I'm probably going to if there's anybody sitting next to me on the ferry, I'm probably going to annoy them because I'm going to be like, look, look out at here. Like, yeah. Let me tell you a story about these like two sisters that like got drowned out here. And it's like, OK, crazy lady. You know, it's like when you have like a story of something that happened, like you drive by like a McDonald's. And you're like, oh, my gosh, that's the McDonald's where I thought I was having a heart attack and going to die. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that McDonald's yeah. is interesting. Every other McDonald's you go by isn't interesting. But that one is because it has some sort of story attached to it or whatever, you know? Like, Yeah. What's so fascinating about looking at geomythology stories, by pulling them kind of out of the individual cultures that they're in and then putting them all together as a group, it shows how similar people react when they encounter the same thing. So it doesn't matter whether you are a person who is living in Stone Age, Oregon, or Alaska, or whether you're a person who is living in Japan or Indonesia, when you have a tsunami, when you have an earthquake, the response is the same. And so often when we're talking about mythologies or folk tales or anything, we want to take them and we put them in the cultures that they belong to. And we look at them next to all of the other cultural stories in that area. But very rarely do we pull all the similar stories out and put them next to each other. And what I think is really interesting about geomythology that is predominantly just being studied by geologists and some anthropologists, but not really a lot of mythologists or folklorists. So by these people taking out all these similar stories from all these individual cultures and then putting them together as like a group, to me, it points out just how similar we all are back then. And today, when we're experiencing these massive natural disasters, these big phenomenon that are bigger than ourselves, that are scary and uncontrollable, all humans want to be able to put them into context, to find a way to keep ourselves safe and to make sense of the world that we're living in. You've been listening to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. If you enjoyed what you listened to, please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more fairy tale content, head over to thefairytellers.wordpress.com for lighthearted retellings, or follow us on Instagram for daily fairy tale memes at thefairy underscore tellers, or even join the conversation on our Facebook page. Special thanks to Andrew Forey for our music and Clarice Inch for our artwork. This episode contains additional music from Kevin McLeod at Incompetech Music. Check him out at Incompetech.com. May you have warm words on a cold evening, a full moon on a dark night, and a smooth road all the way to your door. An Irish blessing. I just suddenly was like, am I talking out of my butt? <laughs>